1: Hello, all. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad to have you here with me. It's with great excitement that I introduce our guest this week, Anne-Marie Ackerman. She's a former American prosecutor who now lives in Germany and is the author of the marvelous book, Death of an Assassin, The True Story of a Murderer Who Died Defending Robert E. Lee. Thank you for joining me today.
2: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: That's a pretty enticing title, I have to say.
2: I'm happy to hear that. Um, It was very interesting with the timing how just when my book got published, the country's perception of Robert E. Lee shifted uh, a little bit. But he is part of our history. And if you read the book, I'm not dealing with the Civil War Robert E. Lee at all. The Robert E. Lee in my book is all... Antebellum. And the book provides you an insight to some other things that Robert E. Lee contributed to our country's history outside of the Civil War.
1: Yeah, it really is fascinating, Robert E. Lee's early life. And I definitely want to ask you about that a little later. But first, how in the world did you find out about this story to begin with?
2: You know, this is going to sound crazy, but it's through bird, was through bird watching. And I know that sounds like I stumbled across a body in the woods. Um, but bird watching has been my hobby since I was a kid. And I belong to the local German historical society in my town. And about five years ago, I offered to write them an article on the history of our town's bird life. And the head of the historical society handed me a 19th century diary from a local forester and said, read this. The guy was sure to have mentioned birds in here somewhere. And between his sightings of a kingfisher on the pond and the hazel grouse up in the woods, he talked about this murder and he talked about how it took 37 years to solve it. And I knew from my experience as a prosecutor, that was unheard of for the 19th century. Today, with DNA, we can solve cases that, long, that old. But for the 19th century, um, that's an incredibly long period of time. Um, I maintain, actually, it's a record for 19th century Germany. But that's what piqued my interest. How could somebody solve a murder that old in the 19th century?
1: Your book opens with the murder of a German mayor. Tell us a little bit about him, would you? And walk us through the fateful night.
2: Okay. The murder happened in October 1835. We're in a small German town that survives mostly from um, the hospitality industry and from uh, producing wine. It's in the middle of the vineyards. A small town of 2000. And the mayor... Uh, a 41-year-old single man, um, his main political interest for the town was building a boy's school and providing education for the youth. Not a very controversial thing, but when he was shot walking home um, in the evening after attending a funeral, the investigators could find no motive. His political agenda was not controversial. And he wasn't married didn't have children, so you can rule out a family dispute. So what was it? I so I yeah, I open up with that murder, and then we move right into an investigation, a la 1835 before fingerprinting was invented, photography, crime scene, um, protection, all that kind of stuff. How did investigators? approach cases. That was fascinating for me to look at.
1: So you're right that we know what he experienced just before and after he was shot, because he didn't die right away, and he was able to report what he knew, what he remembered to authorities. Could you walk us through those minutes up to the shooting, where it happened, and and what he recalled?
2: Yeah, sure. I should probably back up a little bit and say that my source for all this is the investigative file, the detective had a file that was almost 800 pages long. And I was able to locate that in the archives and it had the his interrogations written down word for word by a scribe. Um, but the bear, he was shot in the back with a mixture of buckshot, birdshot, badger shots and survived for 36 hours and was able to give a brief statement. He had been to a funeral that day, went to his brother's restaurant to eat dinner, walked home at 9.45 at night, and he was only four paces in front of his front door when he got shot in the back. He never saw the shooter, and he had no idea why anybody would do it. So that kind of left the investigator, well, without any leads at the beginning. Um, but every investigation is a function of two things. I know, I know that in, in murder mysteries, it's often the personality of the detective, but there, it's really more a function of the technology available at the time and the rules of criminal procedure. And you'll see both of them influence the investigation in a way that forced the investigator to uh, focus on witness statements is his primary
1: piece of evidence. And now a quick word from a sponsor. So I love this one, guys. If you're a fan of Most Notorious, you obviously enjoyed true crime stories that shine a light on the darkest corners of humankind. Lurking in the shadows behind the petty criminals and the amateur thieves are the masterminds of the criminal underworld. In Kingpins, a new podcast from Parcast that I love, they take a deep dive into the minds and stories of the men and women who call the shots and rule the crime world. So each episode of Kingpins goes deep inside the ranks of organized crime rings from street gangs to mafiosos, to expose what it takes for a kingpin or queenpin to rise to the top of the underworld, and why they eventually fall. Using extensive research, Kingpins analyzes a leader of a crime syndicate and profiles the outrageous people and skewed relationships behind organized crime. Kingpins will reveal what kind of person is drawn into the world of organized crime, what it takes to ascend within a crime organization, and what it takes to bring them down. So episodes on Frank Lucas and Richard the Iceman Kuklinski are available right now. Look for upcoming episodes on Pablo Escobar, Freeway Rick Ross, and Queenie St. Clair. New episodes come out every Friday. So search for Kingpins wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's K-I-N-G-P-I-N-S, Kingpins. Or visit parcast.com slash kingpins to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash kingpins to listen now. Again, this show has my absolute recommendation, so check it out as soon as you can. And now back to the show. So correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a little while since I read the book, but he was hit by eight or nine pieces of buckshot, right? And, and what damage did they cause that led to his demise?
2: Oh, actually, he got hit by much more. I I don't recall the exact number, but there were about thirty holes in the back of his coat. Um, some holes in his vest and his suspenders, his shirt but uh in the his back between the shoulder blades the investigator says it was about in an area with a diameter of a dessert plate he had 10 entry wounds and he had an exit wound right below one of his nipples um another it wasn't exactly a, an uh, an exit wound but one of the pieces of shot went all the way through his body but just didn't make it out of the skin so you could see the shot uh, underneath the skin and the the shot perforated his lungs from back to front and then that allows air to seep in um into the pleural space and that makes it harder for the person to breathe he he had normal thorax th- thorax and the the victim eventually suffocates as a result of the wounds um one shot did go through his liver another one It didn't perforate the heart, but it went through the cardiac sac. Um, A friend of mine, who's a uh, physician, said they may have had a chance of saving him today in a hospital, but it would have been a tough case. She wouldn't have been able to guarantee it.
1: Interesting. So after he's shot, he still manages to drag himself away, up some stairs, shout for help. This is a town that, in 1835, doesn't have much by way of law enforcement, right? But the local townspeople do a pretty good job on their own and they start investigating, they fetch a doctor.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, it, it, but there there was a little bit of law enforcement. I, I think the town had a, a police officer and it had um, watchmen. The city, this was a walled city with gates and they had Watchmen at the gates. Um, But the closest thing they had to a detective was um, two towns away. And back in 1835, when um, the doctor who initially treated the mayor had to send a messenger at 1130 at night, two towns away, to alert the authorities. And by the time the detective showed up, it was... Uh, already daylight. Um, and that is, I'm sure, why the town stepped in. The first sub- suspects were two young boys in the churchyard who, just five minutes before the mayor was shot, had been firing their pistols to attract the attention of the beautiful Katharina Meyer, who was visiting from Stuttgart. And, uh, one of them loaded too much powder in his pistol. The pistol exploded, ripped a thumb off. Um, and he went careening through the town in pain. Um, came to the town surgeon to get treated. Um, the detective ended up concluding he didn't do it. Nobody, nobody who just lost their thumb is, is going to think about picking up a what you can't even handle. Um, a gun, but thinking about murdering somebody. But the town had these two guys as the first suspects, and the city council interrogated them and wrote down their interrogations word for word. Some city council members um, searched by torchlight or lantern light the courtyard to see if they could find any projectiles. Um, That was the kind of thing that the city did to help the detective ahead of time, and he, he welcomed that kind of help. Today it would be unthinkable that a town gets involved in a murder investigation before the detective arrives, but that was the realities in
1: 1835. The investigation that followed was truly remarkable for 1835.
2: In a couple of aspects, yes. For me, the most remarkable thing is that the detective, I'm convinced, was the first to try using forensic ballistics as an investigative tool. That's probably what you're referring to,
1: right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
2: This was something I knew before I even read the investigative file that France was, has the laurels for inventing forensic ballistics. And what that is, is the technique that the police use um, based on scratches or markings on a bullet to identify the weapon that shot it. And you do test shooting in the laboratory and you compare the bullet from the victim's body with a bullet from the test shooting under a comparison microscope. And uh you can make a match or rule out a weapon. And France is credited with inventing the technique in 1888. Um, was the first country to have ever had a conviction based on forensic ballistics. So you can imagine my surprise when I'm reading through this German file from 1835 and the detective said, I noticed some scratches on the buckshot from the victim's body, so I collected all the weapons in town and we did test shooting. I was so shocked to read well, what I ended up doing. Uh, I called the police and the police put me in touch with the forensic ballistics technician for the Baden-Württemberg State Police in Stuttgart. He invited me to the laboratory because he couldn't believe it either. He did test shooting to try to replicate the conditions of the Reber murder and found uh, that, yes, the investigator in 1835 could have really excluded a suspect weapon like he said he did. Um, So that makes it excluding an innocent person in an investigation is just as important as finding the guilty one. It's a step forward in the investigation and this guy used forensic ballistics to do it so we say this is the first use of forensic ballistics. I gave a, a lecture two weeks ago at the state police um, about this, and they seem to um, uh, accept these conclusions as well. Some high town is going to try for a Guinness Book of
1: World Records, a Guinness World Record, and let's see what happens. Incredible! What was the, the name of the lead investigator?
2: Edward Hama. Like Hammer. Okay. Yeah.
1: And his investigation is extremely thorough and interesting to me because over the course of doing however many episodes of Most Notorious, there are plenty of 19th century murder investigations that aren't necessarily done well, you know? So I was really impressed with how he did what he did, pursuing every lead so completely... And there was some evidence to suggest early on that the killer was a hunter, right
2: yeah, um there were a couple of clues, but I'm just curious, I wanted to ask you these other cases that you talked about from the nineteenth century. did they also deal with the murder of a public official within an assassination because
1: off the top I of think, my head no, yeah that's a, a very good point
2: point. and I think what, once I think the police react totally differently when it's a public official. I think they pour a lot more energy into it. Um, But, yeah, there were a couple of indications that the assassin might have been a hunter. um, And the investigator found some wadding that is actually something that you used in the period front-loading rifles um, that was made out of deer hair where where would the suspect get deer hair um could be a hunter the investigator took the um shot pellets that were used in the murder and compare them to the sizes of the shot pellets commercially sold in the german town and they didn't fit so they weren't a standard size and weight and that might have been an indication that the person was making their own shot, which hunters did do back then. Um, and that actually turned out to be the case. The I'm not giving too much away, but yes, the assassin
1: was a hunter. Could you explain the, the significance of the signpost in the woods?
2: Yeah, that was the weirdest clue in the case. Who would have ever thought... They, the the mayor gets murdered downtown and you find a clue 3 miles away in the middle of the woods but what happened is the following year when the investigator had already stopped investigating but the case had become cold um two people who had been taking a walk in the woods reported that they found a signpost for the paths in the woods and it said on one post um your shoemaker, Furtinger, shot the mayor, and the other signpost said a hunter's apprentice will travel to Heilbronn, which is a local port city on the Neckar. And I think the 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 investigator uh, had already interrogated this Furtinger, who was implicated on the signpost. He had a solid alibi. And I think totally missed some indications that those notes were actually written by the assassin himself. I he was, I think he was taunting the police and you see that in some murder cases when, um, the, the murderer doesn't get caught for a while and then the murderer starts taunting the police and writing letters. You saw that, you see that in the zodiac case. You see that in the, btk case i think that's what happened here because in retrospect that all fits up perfectly to the murderer's life but i don't want to give away too much because um you won't find out how that all fits up towards the end
1: it's such a devastating blow to the community that the death of this mayor who seemed very well loved he had put a lot of his own personal money into a school Exactly, and the mayor that would follow him had actually put the clothes that the murdered mayor had worn the blood crusted clothes on display for years, right That's true.
2: um his successor took the clothes he had been wearing when he was shot and and literally they were covered with blood, his shirt was saturated, blood was running down his pants, and put them on display in the city hall. So the town would never forget what happened to the mayor who was shot. And they were still on display when the case was solved in 1872. And I read something in our archives that they were actually still on display at the turn of the century around 1900. I'm not sure when they were finally taken down. But, yeah, if you can imagine in a small town, the mayor gets shot. I think everybody felt personally threatened. That's scary.
1: Yeah. So he's not a primary suspect at the time, but there is a man named Gottlob Rube. Forgive my Gottlob, pronunciation. Gottlob Rube. Gottlob Rube. Got it.
2: Yeah, that's that sounds great.
1: <laughs> Thank you. He flees Germany soon after this crime is committed. And I'd love it if you could tell us how he managed to get away and where he ultimately went.
2: Okay. Yeah, gottlob Rupp was uh, the murderer. And we know that he immigrated to Philadelphia about six months after the murder, but he just disappeared from his hometown. Um, the mayor of his hometown said, like he was there one day and he was gone the next and left in April or May of 1836, but in Germany at that time, you had to apply for a passport and to get a passport to immigrate, you had to prove that you had the money to pay for your passage. You had to, and you had to renounce your, um, not German citizenship back then. It was the kingdom of Württemberg, but you had to renounce your citizenship. And there's no record that this guy ever did that. That means he was. Um, what the Germans call a black or an illegal immigration, maybe even traveling with a um, counterfeit passport and false papers. But the next thing we know about him is that he shows up in Philadelphia and he's a baker.
1: So he laid low for a spell in Pennsylvania, but abandoned his career as, as a baker for one with the military. What what do you think motivated him to take up arms? Um one thing might have been money.
2: Uh the pay wasn't great, but I think a lot of Germans at the time who wanted American citizenship thought it, it would look good on their record if they had military service because they were showing loyalty to their new adopted country. But another thing that um influenced him Oh, yeah, going back to the money, there in 1837, our country had a depression, the Panic of 1837. So he might have been low on money. Um, but at the same time, across the border in Canada, there was a Canadian grassroots movement for independence from Britain called the Patriot War, and the United States had to – Man its borders to make sure that that war didn't spill across the borders or that Americans didn't violate the Neutrality Act by going over to Canada to fight with the Canadians. And our assassin signed up for the U.S. Army, the 4th Artillery, uh, to guard the Canadian border. Um, in the, around 1840, and as that was a result of this Patriot War, most people I don't think have even heard of the Patriot War. But if you read my book, you'll find out about, about it and how it uh, affected American politics for a few years. Certainly affected the assassin's life. And after he got out of his five year stint with the military in 1845, that was just in time for the outbreak of the Mexican-American War in 1846. Um, In Philadelphia, there were so many Germans. Um, Germans had their own um, volunteer militia. They trained together. I think there were four companies even. They trained together. Um, They did parades, hosted dances together. Um, They sometimes got called up by the governor to quell riots. But when the Mexican-American War broke out, And President Polk called for volunteers. The first company from Philadelphia to volunteer was one of these German militia companies and our assassin was in it. And it was there in the Mexican-American war that he had his fateful encounter with Robert E. Lee.
1: So I'd like to ask the question you pose, if you don't mind, at the very beginning of chapter 16. Why would an immigrant take up arms and risk his life defending a foreign country, a country in which he doesn't claim citizenship? Part of it, like
2: I said, might have been a, a um, source of income. Part of it, like I mentioned before, the Germans were wanting our um, uh, to prove their loyalty to a new company. But there was this, also this huge wave of enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. When the Mexican-American War broke out, people wanted the adventure. Um, uh, people didn't want to be left out. And even men who disagreed with Polk politically were signing up to volunteer for the war. Um, I think Mexico was viewed as a um, aggressor for having crossed what was supposedly the U.S.-Mexican uh, um, border and having killed some American soldiers, this was to get revenge, and it was also manifest destiny. Let's see if we can get these Mexican lands and add them to our country. A whole bunch of things there together, I think. You, you studied Ameri- early American history yourself.
1: Um, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Could you add anything to that? Because the Mexican American War is certainly part of that.
1: Yeah, I think that everything that you've said makes good sense. Uh, one particular thing I'd like to, to bring up, which you cover in your book, is that he was an immigrant, of course. And, and the subject of immigration is, is such a heated one today, especially illegal immigration. There was no record of him officially entering the United States, was there? Oh gosh, I wish I could remember the the term you use. Covert illegal? Is that how you put it?
2: Yeah, covert, covert um, immigrants. You have to realize that that for for people in Europe, if they've committed a crime and want want to escape from justice in their own land. Um, traveling to the United States was a great way to do it. I I don't know about all the uh, other countries, but the kingdom of Württemberg did not have an extradition treaty with the United States. But of course these people would, they would never give the real reasons for their immigration. So I call them covert. Um, They're they're leading out uh, a life in the United States with people not knowing that they're, long-sought murderers or whatever um, from Europe. But it it's also interesting in the Mexican-American War, um, if you look at, I think, the regular army, I think they said about 40% were immigrants. That was a very um, international, multi-culti army that we had back then. And like I said, in the... 1st Pennsylvania Regiment, they had one company that was all German. You saw that, too, in the Civil War. There were a number of uh, all German companies,
1: but we had that in the Mexican-American War as well. What I find fascinating about your book, among other things, is is that you intertwine another narrative into it, the, the story of Robert E. Lee. And it's a story that that most of us probably don't know, his life prior to his service for the Confederacy. And he had some pretty tragic things happen earlier in his life, didn't he?
2: Um, Yes,
1: that's true.
2: Um, He lost his father. Um, He didn't actually... his, His father was actually a hero in the Revolutionary War. We've all heard the... Words from George Washington's eulogy, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. That was Robert e's, Lee's father who, who gave that eulogy and, and penned those, um, words. But he had financial difficulties after the Revolutionary War, was in debtor's prison, um, got caught up in a riot and was severely injured and never recovered from those wounds and died. Um, so Robert E. Lee's mother had to raise him on her, her own, was very frugal, but really cared about the education of uh, her children. And um, he excelled, got accepted into West Point. I think he's the only person in the history of West Point who have ever graduated Without any demerits. I'm not 100% sure on that, but that is really pretty rare. So he, he shined, um, through his school education at West Point, um, and landed in the Army Corps of Engineers in the early 1830s. And most people don't, don't know this. He's responsible for opening up the Mississippi, um, for transportation. And that had a huge influence on the economic development of the Midwest um, prior to eighteen fifty, prior to the Civil War. I think we have a tendency in our country to view Robert E. Lee through a two-sided prism of the Civil War. Um and 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 overlayered on top of that the slavery issue. But he, he was much more facet, fascin- multifaceted than just the Civil War. There was more to him than that. And even if one doesn't agree with Lee, I think you, you don't really understand history until you can answer what did the South see in this man and why would they follow him? And I think you do see a little bit of that in my book, what, what the, Anti-Bellum Robert E. Lee brought to his career, his experiences before the Civil War,
0: even broke out. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So the fate of this, this immigrant, this murderer, although we we don't yet know he's a murderer, uh, when this happens quite yet. But 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 his fate and the fate of Robert E. Lee, their lives intersect. Not directly, but one person's role in the Battle of Vera Cruz affects affects the other.
2: Yeah, and I would actually even say directly, because the assassin ended up dying practically at Robert E. Lee's feet. This was Robert E. Lee's first battle at the Siege of Veracruz, and Lee was so impressed by this man's death, by his courage, by his long-suffering, he wrote a letter home to his son, Custis Lee, praising this unidentified soldier as a hero. And the crazy thing is, if you read some Robert E. Lee biographies, um, not the old ones, because this letter actually was acquired by the Virginia Historical Society in 1981. Before then, it had been in somebody's private collection. But the more recent biographies of Robert E. Lee and the one by – oh, I'm looking here in my bookshelf – Um Elizabeth Elizabeth Brown Pryor, reading The Man, discusses this letter and asks, well, why would Robert E. Lee um write this about a person? Because uh, Lee concludes, um, I doubt whether all of Mexico is worth to us the life of this man. Why would he write that? But nobody has asked who the guy is. And that makes the... The story so interesting. I was able through archival research by comparing the descriptions of the deaths at the naval battery that Lee was commanding um, against the casualty list and comparing that to Lee's letter to, to find out who it was, and it was the uh, assassin from. Um, Germany and that give, gave me an incredible opportunity to tell American history in a true crime format. Is there anything that can make history more fun than telling it as a murder mystery? A true murder mystery? Oh, of course not. (laughs) In a way, you could say maybe it's, it, it raises the question of redemption. Can you be a murderer in one country and die as a hero in another? Now, maybe Americans and Germans would have a different answer to that question, but it's an interesting question to raise. The story raises that question on its own.
1: We, we of course, don't have to go into the entire battle, but what were the the circumstances that led Rube to die at the feet of Lee?
2: Um, Rube's company was assigned to um, defending Robert E. Lee's battery And uh, he was in a a trench close to Lee's battery and he got hit twice by Mexican cannonball in the same leg, each time fracturing his leg. And it was very hot. It was 100 degrees and Lee ordered that he be laid in the trench with some brush put over him to protect him from the heat, an incoming Mexican ball shattered the American water supply at the battery so that they weren't able to give him much except for a few cups of, of dirty water. And then finally at the, the end of, of the um, exchange of fire towards the end of the day, when the fire died down, they thought it would be okay to transport this man to the hospital. They put him on a, stretcher, and as they were lifting him out of the trench, in came a Mexican cannonball and hit him in the chest that killed him immediately.
1: Uh, And Lee was aware of that, quite what he wrote about that in his letter. What importance do you think that not only the battle, but the death of this man played in Robert E. Lee's future military career?
2: It was Robert E. Lee's first battle. So those were his uh, first encounters with death on the battlefield. Um, People have asked why he wrote that. And I think probably the, the best explanation is he was trying to provide an example of courage to his son. Um, If you look at Lee's letters home to his son, you can see, even though Lee is away at the war, he's still trying to educate his children as much as he can through correspondence. And I think Lee was trying to say to his son, this is an example of courage. I doubt whether all Mexico is worth to us the life of that man, because although he was injured, Didn't get any water. It was 100 degrees heat. This guy laid for hours without complaining and then took his death. That's courage.
1: So I do want to shift to another man who was also a suspect at one point in the murder. A man named Frederick Rupp, who, like Rube, also traveled to America and lived in Pennsylvania until he moved to Washington, D.C., right?
2: That's right. Um, Rupp was a a comb maker in um, my town, Um, a, a young man, about 26 years old. And although the detective never suspected him, his name never once appears in these 800 pages of the criminal investigation. For some reason, the town people thought it was him. He might have been the town Scapegoat or the town nerd, I don't know why, but this gossip is, um, reflected in a diary and it turned Rupp's life to hell. And he ended up immigrating to the United States, um, about the same time that the assassin did with his mother and almost all of his siblings and his, his bride. He was newly married and they found a new life in Philadelphia. Like you said, he moved to Washington D.C. and the crazy thing is, if Rupp
1: hadn't been there in Washington D.C., the case would have never been solved. And now another quick word from a sponsor. There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through. That's not smart. But you know what is smart? Going to ziprecruiter.com/most to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash most. That's ziprecruiter.com slash most. ZipRecruiter.com slash most. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Yeah, so there is this extraordinary letter um, that he writes and mails back to Germany, and it's based on a conversation he had with someone. Right. Right.
2: Right. Um, he had. He was at a um, some kind of social function in Washington, D.C. with other Germans. They all got around to telling. Uh, um, ghost stories, murder stories, that kind of thing. And Rupp jumped in with the story of the murder of his mayor and a German mayor from Philadelphia chimed in and said, uh, hey, uh, I know who did that. So uh, Rupp sent uh, the, the information to Bernikheim, the my German town, the, the newly formed prosecutor's office, reopened the investigation, and they found corroborating evidence to support Rupp's um, uh, solution. It was true. And the prosecutor closed the case and solved in 1872. But, you know, the the cool thing is, is that the city of Bernikheim had issued a reward way back in 1835 for information leading to the identification of the murderer. So suddenly in 1872, rips the first guy who's entitled to it. And you never believe what my town did. It didn't pay the reward. <laughs> um, so, um. And, and there's, there's a reason for that. It's uh, I, I some files got misfiled. It, um is probably why that happened. But um, when I was researching this book, I went into our mayor's office in 2014 and I said, you know, uh, your predecessor was was murdered in 1835 and city issued this reward and we never paid it. So let's do it now. And he didn't think the city was legally obligated to pay a reward after 180 years, but he thought it was the moral and diplomatic thing to do. And guess what? We finally got to do it in May um 2018. We were invited to the Gaithersburg Book Festival. Two of Rope's d- descendants live in Gaithersburg. Um, and two others came in, one from Florida, one from New Jersey. And we pay the reward 183 years after the murder. What an
1: incredible they, story.
2: Yeah, we think... That's another Guinness World Record. Um, We applied and Guinness wrote back and said, your story is too tailor made for a reward. And we're thinking, well, isn't that kind of like admitting that we have the reward? Um, But in retrospect, I think what they're saying is they want more information about our competition. So we're researching that now. Um, Our current mayor has written to law enforcement agencies all over the world asking for um, their records on the oldest reward for solving a murder ever paid. And then once we get some statistics, we're gonna try again.
1: So one of the most amazing aspects to this letter, and, and please correct me if I don't have this exactly right, but Rupp writes that during this conversation he has with this man, he he learns the actual motive for the assassin's murder of the mayor. And it was some slight that the assassin had experienced uh, getting passed over for a, a job as a deer hunter. Do, do I have that right?
2: Um, yeah, he was actually applying for a job in the forestry department. He was already... Uh a hunter. I think uh, Rupp didn't know that. But what the what the German acquaintance said in Washington D.C. is that uh, Rupp was applying for a job as a game warden, going from hunter to game warden. And Rupp blamed the mayor for his not having gotten the job. And if you read in my book about Rube's background in Germany, um, he just let money always flow through his fingers. You can understand why not getting a job would be of momentous uh, importance to him. Um, It made him angry enough to kill a mayor.
1: Yeah, he was described multiple times as being slovenly, right? Kind of a roustabout just sitting around and taking up space.
2: Yeah. Um, the worst of it is, and this guy was already 31, um, wasn't, hadn't been able to hold, hold steady employment. The worst of it is his, is that his own father dragged him to court and had bankruptcy declared on the ba behalf of his own son. And especially in those days that, that was huge. Families didn't do that because, uh, it, it, it ruined their reputation. So something must have been really wrong with this guy. Um, but the funny thing is, once he moved to the U.S., I spent a day in the Philadelphia city archives looking for Rube's name. I thought, if, okay, if he has problems with breaking the law, Problems with bankruptcy, he, he's going to show up in, in, in either in a, a Philadelphia criminal court files or bankruptcy files. No, not one word. He, he seems to have totally changed his life around once he ri- arrived in the U.S. I find, I find that interesting.
1: What's incredible to me is, is that you're in the middle of all of this. I mean, how do you broker this connecting the reward to his descendants Getting officials to pay it you you really were in the the thick of things, weren't you?
2: Um, yeah, that was really interesting. Getting people to uh, uh, pay it wasn't um, finding money wasn't that difficult. Um, actually, the original award was for two hundred gulden, which, depending on how you want to calculate it, would be about five thousand American dollars in today's money. But our city council is not authorized to pay that much without some reason or a vote. But the mayor said he'd contribute 200. And I presented this case at our local historical society four years ago. And suddenly a, a bank manager there said the bank would ship in with 500. And then two private people chipped in with um, more money. And we ended up. Putting together at the end, 1,500 euros. Um, the mayor used part of that to fly to, um, the United States. So we gave him a reward of 1,000 euros. The really hard part was convincing the descendants it was real. Now, now if you think about, just think about how it sounds. I, I was in the mayor's office and we found one of the descendants. We called her up. And the mayor and I start explaining, you know, your great-great-grandfather solved the murder of the mayor in our town in 1872 and he never got the reward and we want to pay it now. What do you think we hear on the other end of the phone? Click. click. Um, Our mayor said that was the first time in his political career that anybody had ever hung up on him. Um, so I said to the mayor, let's wait till my book is published. That gives them s- some credibility. And when it did, I sent a copy of the book to each of, um, the descendants. Uh, so I think, you know, Kent State University Press that's on the outside, you know, helps. And then our mayor wrote to each of their mayors sent them a copy of the book and said, look, I have a little bit of a, a credibility problem here. Um, could you maybe help out? Could you confirm that I'm really the mayor of Bernachein, Germany, and tell your constituents that I really do want to pay this money? And you know what? It worked. Um, we heard right back from the mayor of Gaithersburg, Maryland, Ush- uh, Judd Ashman. Um, he's the founder of one of the biggest book festivals in the United States, the Gaithersburg Book Festival. And he invited us to come and present the reward in person to the descendants. And that was that was wonderful. That, that made international news when that happened. Um, it was before it, it, ahead of time, Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Seattle Times. It was on, um, I mean, in, in C-SPAN. Um German press agency, Hungarian newspapers, Malaysian newspaper yeah, it was that was amazing. But fun, fun. I never I never thought that um that marketing your, your own book could be so much fun is paying a one hundred and eighty three
1: three year old reward. It was,
2: that was a once in a lifetime experience.
1: What a journey for you from When you first learned about the murder as as an aside to your bird watching.
2: (laughs) That's exactly. When I first read about this in the diary, I thought, hey, this would be another article for our local historical society. I had never had any idea that this this story would get so big. But I started researching it. It just got bigger, 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 And it was so much fun to piece together stuff from the German and American archives. Um, In retrospect, this case was just waiting for me. I I can speak both languages. I have the criminal law background. And, um,
1: yeah, was able to put this together. Yeah, you were in the perfect place at the perfect time. Right, right. And, of course, a lot of hard work. There are so many interesting primary sources you used. This book was extensively Researched
2: well thank you i um I'm not a historian, so I had no idea how historians would react um, to my research, but I do think lawyers and historians do have one thing in common, and that is that the library is their research laboratory.
1: wouldn't you say I would say so, yeah, I had an email from someone recently uh, that asked where do you go to find a topic for a book, to write a book? And this is a great example. You you just follow your passions, work hard, just dig, and occasionally one will fall in your lap, right?
2: Yeah, that's how I felt about this case. But also the feeling like, almost like, I was meant to have moved to this town just to have discovered this case. Um, our our mayor um, made a comment that struck me because you have to realize after 183 years, even the townsfolk have forgotten about the murder. The historical society still knew about it. And he said that I took an unknown chapter of our town's history and I made it known worldwide. I mean, that's not what I my goal was when... To do that, when I discovered the case, all of that came along in just the fun of developing this case. But in many ways, it's true. Um, now, now a lot of people in the United States know about this case as well. And the people in my town had you know, had forgotten about the murder. They Now they know about it and its significance.
1: It must feel really great.
2: It's been a, fun. It's been, that's, it's been a lot of fun. That's how I
1: would describe it.
2: History can be fun, you guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's definitely something we know here. <laughs> so for people who want to learn more about you, what you've done, and where to get your book, where can we direct them?
2: Um, you can direct them to my website, and that's www. AnneMarieAckerman.com. And if you don't know how to spell Anne Marie Ackerman, if you just Google 1835 German mayor murder, my website uh, should come up. The book is called Death of an Assassin. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, it, then that should be pretty easy to find. And gosh, if you get it, I sure hope you enjoy it. I think it's a fun romp through a piece of American history that a lot of people don't even know.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And I'll, I'll spell your name correctly and put the name of the book in the show notes. So no problem there. Thank you again. Oh, no problem. Again, this has been Anne-Marie Ackerman, author of Death of an Assassin, the true story of a murderer who died defending Robert E. Lee. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenus, and have a safe tomorrow.
2: Supercalifragilisticexpialidosis. Next
0: new Ellen, Mary Poppins, Emily Blunt, Backstreet Boys, and A Taste of 12 Days. Ellen, today at 3 on NBC4. Strangers coming together for one mission, to stop one man.
1: How can he keep doing this? News 4 first alerted you to this story. Now, more accusations
2: and outrage. How to protect your family tonight on News 4 at 5.